Hey everyone, and welcome to episode two of Ignite the Flame Audio season two. If you're just tuning in, I would encourage you to go back to episode one just to see what that has to offer before we get any further into this story. Basically, for those of you who are just joining us, I'll give you a breakdown of the episode. I'll read a chapter, in this case being chapter two from the book we're currently reading, Scarcrow, followed by a section known as The Origin of Ideas, where we take the inspirations for that chapter and break them down for you. Then we have a section known as Tips of the Trade, which are for those of you who are aspiring to be authors yourselves, or those of you who are already authors just looking for that extra bit of assistance. So without any further ado, let's go ahead and get into it. I'm Wayne Telford, and I'll see you on the other side. Welcome to Ignite the Flame Audio, where our hope is to bring people together one word at a time. Follow me, Wayne Telford, into the depths of your imagination. Scarcrow Chapter 2 Call of the Raven Upon opening my eyes, I awakened from my past into reality, and witnessed my new profound profession lying before me as I kneel to his side. A memory but past as my eyes were silent. But now came the time for redemption in the reawakening of this fallen soul. His name is Angus Hart. He works for a molten steelworks down at London Docklands. A large and ghastly building, as you can tell from his hands. The work of an ironmonger and the blisters to match. In addition, his wallet, Jack. Why must you always proceed with a path which includes multiple trials? As Inspector Moore hands the wallet in question toward me, I reply. I suppose I prefer the hard walk, as the rest of society would rather rest on the backs of others. At least I know I have earned all I have been blessed with. Yes, quite. Ever the social optimist. I apologize, Inspector. You still have yet to see the darkness which is creeping into our society and demoralizing all which used to be sacred. Darkness dwells within us all. It takes a person with true morale to improve and be the light for others. Well spoken, Inspector. I guess my faith in mankind has become lost somehow. Well, when in this profession, Jack, it is hard and misery to see the good in man, but you must help others to see past it. A purity undiscovered, like my predecessor, Detective Jekyll, regardless, what do you have for me? Slight bruising of the neck, surrounding a wound favouring the larynx. Possibly a bladed instrument. The hyoid bone is fractured, and severe internal bleeding has occurred in the main artery running parallel to the neck. Signs of veining, severely positioned in the eyes, displaying optical hemorrhaging. Asphyxiation via strangulation with the rope or hangman's noose, as the probable cause of death. Rope fibers are infused into the marks on the neck. See here? As I point to their markings upon his throat, I cushion the dead within my hands, as if to nurture an infant. Ah, yes, I see. And a wound? Post-mortem, I believe. Perhaps a means to ensure death. A new hand, perhaps. Perhaps. Remove the body and have your report on my desk by the end of this day. Very well, Inspector. Inspector Moore was a stern man, with a mustache and beard only centimeters thick, a full head of brown hair and thick sideburns, 
a slim figure with weighted shoulders, skin of beige and eyes which told the story of a life in high standing. A high-class gentleman indeed, but to me, he is a mentor, a leader of sorts, a friend, for giving me chances I was unworthy of. But something was holding me back from trusting him. Despite our year of working alongside each other, he was only an acting detective under Jekyll then. But with Jekyll's disappearance, more had ascended all too quickly, and I felt I had yet to know him. I veiled the body once more and sheathed his shell from daylight, allowing officers Daltz and Schumann to remove him from this precious scene and reclaim his tale within my notes, almost to document his final moments with such a detail as if I were present within his very being. But how I did this, it is unknown to me. Perhaps, never mind. As his body is placed in the back of the carriage, a solid black box with silver bracing holds it like a fire's guard, sneaking up the doors and wheel arches. A robust structure with a large rear compartment, purposefully designed for the storage of the dead. The driver's eyes glow a fiendish yellow, and a smile of reception claims his face, whilst the last of Mr. Hart is consumed by the maw of his contraption. Driver, onward to my morgue, post-haste, and do not grow weary. If we lose any detail, this will all be for nothing. Yes, sir. Right you are, sir, as he adjusts the position of his hat and turns to regain sight of what lies ahead. I climb aboard and take my place to his side, watching over him as the angel himself, ready to transport his remnants to my asylum and carve him, thus ascertaining the truth to his demise, a practice I was all too familiar with. As we trundle through the streets of the outer city, it is clear that all the wealth of the empire has not leached to these areas, their houses barely able to stand, and families lying dormant as though to accept any kind of generosity from passers-by. Alas, I am expected to live to a deadline, but then it is always the excuse. I just don't have time. I'm in too much of a hurry. Perhaps I will stop one day for these citizens, which would someday prove to be my greatest of allies. They're young, begging for bread as animals, with hands open and bodies shackled with plague consuming their limbs individually. Soot-covered faces and scrawny postures, barely resembling a human at all. Their clothing shattered and torn by their pursuits against the betters of this world, and having to fight for all they hardly possessed, whilst belittling others as to obtain little more than to ensure the survival of their family at least. Please, sir, my mother has to work several jobs and is dying... Please, help. Other cries which ring throughout my soul. My mind's echo trying to find a way to help and maintain my own high-costing life as well. Part of me pities them, as I belonged to them once. But times have changed, and once Plenty found me, I was sure to redeem them. But time was needed. Time which they had so little of. Much like everything else. We're here, sir. Your morgue is just ahead, the driver instructs, so as to divert my attention once more to the task at hand. Thank you, driver. That will be all for now. Here you are, and if you could pick up some more polished glass from Mr. Inglewards, that would be most helpful. 
Why do you need more glass, sir? What glass? You just... Uh, oh, I see. Very well, sir. Consider it done. As he conceals his face and taps his finger to his nasal cavity, it becomes apparent as to my intentions. Mr. Inglewartz, a front for glass blowing, a fine art and craft, passed down through generations from Father Thomas to me, to my ravens. But Inglewood was my first student from a flock of ravens I had aided over a year ago, and now he felt his craft could be of better use, leading a double life, crafting bottles by day and orbs by night. How did he manage? Only to have them delivered by this courier who now took his leave. My colleagues emanate from within the morgue, pacing forward and chanting as though a druid chorus, claiming another for their pagan rituals the church sounding its bells nearby and singing, echoing throughout the atmosphere in spiritual waves, welcomes the dead into our embrace. Now, be careful with him. It is very important that we preserve all we can. Understood. And almost in complete unison, they reply, Yes, Dr. Lantern, we will treasure him as if his soul remains. As wraiths, they claim his mortal remains, and retreat beneath the blanket of daylight, veiling themselves in darkness. His body is led through a narrow corridor to the right, following a white floor and black-walled stretch to the left, and finally through to the morgue, where they were to dwell the rest of the day. Now, gently place him on the table. That's it. Carefully. Perfect. Now, leave us and return to me with my tools, please. Yes, Dr. Lantern. Will you be requiring... And before they can finish, I interrupt. Yes. I will be requiring those instruments in addition. Thank you. And as I turn to open my cupboard, a voice calls to me. Release me. And as a tool with no mind, I answer, pulling back the doors and revealing the scarecrow's mask, which has haunted my every dream since that fateful day. Hello, old friend. Ready for another session. Let us begin. I find myself answering to this inanimate object, summonsing me to its beck and call, as though expectant of my allegiance. I place the mask over my head and feel consumed by fear and a surge of energy alike, electrifying my hands and toes to produce hypersensitivity. I stand over Mr. Hard's body and begin to see all he had committed in work, in life, in death. Gaseous figures fill the room and depict the entire scene with vivid detail, depicting all which was in the vision. Chandeliers perfectly aligned and mahogany furniture, surprising for someone with such a middle-class profession. A draw set with a mirror adorning its northern side, such that it reflects an additional figure. This figure proceeding toward Mr. Hard and placing the noose over his head, as he would adorn a hat. Several specters surround him, and begin to levitate his body before dropping into his death, leaving his lifeless entity to hang from the burdened ceiling, only to reveal our intention and observations upon the scene. Soon after, it moves forward, and a glowing figure passes by with a hood of great worth, ornamentation upon his arms and hands with an ominous awe about him, as if to be familiar, and superseded by another glowing itself upon the wall behind in addition. The vision hurts to conceive, and I tear the mask from my face, 
unsheathing its power over me, and find my colleagues surrounding Mr. Hart's body with all manner of unacceptable tools, ready to carve his corpse wide open, as in for exposing the truth, or at least, that is what we convinced ourselves. After a while, Mr. Hart's chest is opened as a book unto the table, with the ribs pinned back and resembling a vivisection of sorts, with my eyes trailing over every detail to obtain every plausible reason leading to his forthcoming. Place your hand here, behind the first and second cervical vertebrae, and grip. That's it. I say, as I attempt to reveal the nature of the strangulation when compared to the bruising. Well, it was committed by the noose, gentlemen. And if this wound was post-mortem, it certainly wasn't for killing purposes. But then, for what? Place the mask on and tell us, Dr. Lantern. One of my minions asks, as if entirely devoted to this illusion of blasphemy and desecration whilst in my care. Very well. And as I place the mask over my head, again the noose tightens, this time as if to recall our last encounter just moments ago. Vivid imaginings taking place, and the blade is passed through the vein during life, taking all from Angus' grip, his blood pouring and collecting under the surface of the skin in response, but only after his body had succumbed to the apparent lack of oxygen. But before the culprit is revealed, interruption occurs in the form of my minions, gathering at the doors, begging me to remove my mask, thus being accepted by whoever summoned me. But little did they know I was only swapping one mask for another, to conceal my true feelings toward them. I pull the mask from the drape of my neck, this time clinging to me as though to resist removal and feed on my sanity a little while longer, such as a parasitic organism. Jack, are you there? Dr. Lantern? I hear as I struggle to place the mask back into the confines of my cupboard and cover the work done to Mr. Hart's corpse. Scatter my ravens and return to me when I summon you. I instruct my colleagues, and as though loyal unto death, they heed my call. My asylum. Home for eight months. Its corridors are lined with glass and white and black walls. A light every few feet on the ceiling, swinging as the dead brush by with their hands. In every room an echo of treatment. I can still hear the patients screaming in fear and wanting to be released. A cold and daunting home. But home. I fashion a white and black shirt with a red tie, a waistcoat, black trousers, and overcoat, whilst putting on my worldly disguise. I adjust my attire and compose myself before opening the gates to this house of the mentally challenged. Inspector. Welcome to my humble morgue. Your report is ready, and I believe there may be more to this than at first thought. In what sense? Well, the wound is definitely post-mortem, but produced several hours later, almost as though Mr. Hard was killed in preparation. Preparation for what? That I have yet to deduce. Well, whilst you come to your deduction, Sergeant McLean has ordered that you accompany me on this case to the crime scene to examine any samples of blood or hair, fingerprints and the like, but I can examine them all from here, and I have all the tools with which to do so. Yes, of course. But he insisted you be present at the scene. Why? I don't see what help I can pose with little knowledge of detecting. Perhaps he sees potential. Did you not wish to be a detective at some point? Well, yes, but with my history, it would never happen. Perhaps fate has chose to smile upon you. Plus, 
I have to have an assistant, and I can think of no one better than you. You are well-educated and experienced with the workings of the criminal underworld. Yes, I suppose you're right. Just let me fetch some things first, and I will join you. Very well. I will await you outside, Jack. And what did you mean when you scattered the ravens? I keep them, or did I fail to mention that? One must have a hobby, mustn't one? And as Inspector Moore turns with a smile of ignorance, I rally to my cabinets, hidden behind shelves stacked with literature from the greatest biological pioneers of time. Immortal, each one valuable to me, and my interests of an anatomical nature. The works of T. Southwood Smith's The Use of the Dead to the Living, and J.B. Bailey's The Diary of a Resurrectionist, and the like. Setting the dial mechanism to its appointed number, set the cabinets open to reveal a pair of metal gauntlets infused with leather, surgical apparatus attached to hypodermic needles, and test tubes of liquid methanol, dissolved psilocybin granules, and water mixed into a witch's brew, and siphoned through a tube of India rubber toward the source bag. The psilocybin was obtained from London's own Green Park, with psilocybe semilanciata being its producer. The potential for hallucinogenic and side effects of paranoia, fear, and schizophrenia were all allies within this world of criminal organizations of corruption and hierarchy. The other gauntlet hides a small pressurized steel tube filled with the exhaled vapor of smoking pipes, which, after extensive research, reveals an effect of intensification for the side effects, adding to this deadly array of deception and interrogation. I placed them within a bag and adorned the mask beside it with gloves and top hat. Fashioned, I deemed myself ready to face the world, but not before raising my scarf to my nose, once more accordingly to conceal the hideous appearance which my past seemed fit to scar me with. Opening the doors in an acceptance of fate, Inspector Moore shakes me by the hand, surprisingly supportive, as in normal cases he would extinguish all help, including mine. Perhaps an ulterior motive was at play, but to what end, I had yet to know. Well, Inspector, shall we begin? Jack, why must you insist on wearing that scarf everywhere you go? I feel it is in the public's best interest, and mine. People already believe me to be scarred, both inside and out. Ah, blast what they say. If one cannot be themselves, even with disfigurements and scars, then we should not be entitled to mercy ourselves. Inspirational rhetoric, Inspector. But one man's words can't change a nation's belief. Days are coming when such a thing will be possible, Jack. Maybe even a world's opinion. Well, I welcome such a day for the good of mankind. But if used for evil, I pray it never comes, for it will bring worldwide war and chaos. It's bad enough the wars we have experienced, the Seven Years' War, amongst others, to establish this nation's great empire, let alone a world which is unified. Indeed, but the odds of a worldwide war occurring, my friend, I'm sure that will be myth for years to come, long after we are gone from this world. I hope you're right, for it is not our fathers who perish for our wars, but our children who endure its consequence. Well said, but enough revolution. Shall we proceed with the case? Indeed, Inspector. Do you have your tools? All which I believe I require for the task at hand, Inspector. I say, as I pat my bag, 
maliciously, and smile through the cotton of my scarf, hidden from all but my own awareness. We begin walking toward the scene of the crime, 172 Regent Street, and witness the spread of fear and chaos, torment and suffering, entrapping the young ones as a plague, consuming their pure souls and tainting them to this life of corruption in which the Empire had limited them. We flew its colors for glory, for God to save our queen, but little did we realize while saving the world from its sin, we had grown self-righteous ourselves and opened our doors not only to attack from opposing nations, such as France and Spain, but moral upheaval within rank. This would have to be quenched and purified. It reminded me of an oath I once swore. I swear to uphold the secrets of our order, to divulge to no one, and commit to death those who will not follow. Long live, Bloodsnitch. But that was the past, and I was a changed man, or so I thought. Only until I wore the mask again and let loose this monster inside me upon the world, I was so ready to judge, with not even the slightest inkling of mercy to be shown. How wrong I was to sentence this nation. Perhaps it was for another to determine. One with a far greater understanding than my own. But had I yet to meet such a one? I was to find out. Jack? Whatever? No. Whilst we are on scene... I will refer to you as Dr. Lantern, okay? And you refer to me as Inspector Moore, understand? He said in a patronizingly annoying tone of voice, almost attempting to belittle my every achievement and continue this charade of my being his underling. Understood, Inspector Moore, but know this much. You may outrank me whilst on the scene, but my intellect will not be challenged. Understood. I raised my level of aggression, as if to protect that which I had been blessed with, and life not scarred. Very well, Dr. Lantern. I simply wish you to know that support is awaiting you, and you shouldn't feel that you have to solve this case alone. Yes. I understand the system wishes to support me, Inspector. But alas, I will not kneel to that which has betrayed me since birth and rejected me ever since, fighting for every last breath I have taken. And whilst all that occurs, you and higher-class peoples reap the rewards of our labors, gorging yourselves on our harvest whilst we continue to starve. You consider yourself as one of the lower peasants? Is that it, Doctor? You are a gentleman of class. I wasn't always. And I would rather die among men and women I call my own, rather than live amongst those who are false to my cause. I understand, Dr. Lantern. No further mention on the subject, I promise. Just know I'm there to help, even if you can't accept it. Very well, Inspector Moore. I apologize. It's just, I know, no need to explain. Let us enter the house, shall we? Yes, indeed. Let's get to work. See if we can't solve this case. You may wish justice on the murderer, Inspector. But once relinquished to my custody, I have other intentions for them. What was that, Doctor? Nothing. Never mind, Inspector. Never mind. And welcome to the Origin of Ideas section of this podcast. Basically, this is the section of the podcast where we go into the ideas behind the chapter that's just been read to you. 
and how they influence the chapter. So starting off, the first point we notice is the return of characters from the first book, this case being A Light in the Mist. I mentioned in the previous episode that this is a follow-on. We see the return of Officers Daltz and Schumann, which you'll remember from the first book, and also the mention to Sergeant McCline, also another pivotal character from the first book. The second point is we're introduced to this concept of ravens. Now, what this refers to, which the book will go into more detail as we continue, but basically the idea was influenced by Oliver Twist in the sense that orphans or children then that have basically had a a hard lot in life would be gathered by the main protagonist, Jack, and he would teach them the relevant skills on how to survive. He would teach them a profession in exchange for them helping him running his morgue and performing various arts that he would otherwise not want the world to know about. We obviously get an inside look into that in this chapter, and we see that from older groups of quote-unquote ravens, he's gone on to teach them relative work skills as well, like in the case of Mr. Inglewood, learning how to glass blow. These crafts were highly sought after in Victorian London, and it obviously pays to have those necessary skills, but also they help in the manufacturing of the glass orbs, which Jack obviously then goes on to use later on in the story. The third point is we start to begin to notice a link to the supernatural. Anyone who knows, the majority of our books will always have some link to the supernatural, whether it's a supernatural power or uh, some ability to be able to see into the realm of the dead or something like that. There's always a supernatural twist to the majority of our books because I just find it more interesting to have a supernatural link to the majority of our books. And in this case we see a vision into the past. As soon as Jack puts the Scarecrow mask on, he starts to see within the realm of the dead. He starts to see spectres sort of journeying around. It's almost like he goes into this penultimate dimension, so to speak. And he sees these spectres moving around and sort of shadowing the events that occurred in Angus Hard's past before he ended up meeting his demise. And it just adds that little bit of supernatural to the story, which would otherwise just be somewhat lacking something, in my opinion. The fourth point is this attention to historical detail. I mentioned it in the first season uh, in a section within the final episode of season one. That's episode seven. We go into a section known as time period. And I mentioned in that section that what you want to do is make sure that throughout your novel, the references to history are as accurate as possible because this will avoid scrutiny from people who are more aware of history and those who are more academic. Uh, It just gives them that little bit extra to commend of your work. So in this case, the historical accuracies come from the novels that we experience in Jack's bookshelf. Now, we have reference to T. Southwood Smith's Use of the Dead to the Living and J.B. Bailey's The Diary of a Resurrectionist. Now, these are both Victorian works. They were both um, written during the early 1800s. So they are relevant toward that time. And these sorts of details, even though they're quite small, to someone who knows their history or someone that is willing to then go and check the historical accuracy of the information that you're putting in your books, 
even these slight references, having that not link up to the time period can really put someone off your work. So making sure that, I mean, obviously you don't have to become obsessed to the point where every little detail is historically accurate. But if you can, whenever you reference history, if you can make sure that it's relatively in the right sort of time period, you know, give or take a couple of years, it will just help to solidify that historical accuracy and it will make it more of a, a boon to your story rather than a hindrance. The final point is we have reference to Jack using a scarf. Now, in the story, this is to conceal his appearance because obviously in the first chapter we discovered that he was subject to various gases which would have had effects physically on his skin, his appearance. You know, the, um, I believe in the first chapter he references his flesh being eaten away, his lips being eaten away to the point where his lower jaw is, is severely disfigured. So he prefers to cover his appearance with a scarf. But this also reflects one of my own inhibitions in the sense of appearance. And I believe, you know, it's a, a, a widely a widely found inhibition, especially in today's time, where we're very conscientious about the way we look, about how other people scrutinize the way that we appear. And while I was writing Scarcrow, I used to sort of have uh, my hair was sort of like neck length black because I was, you know, going through a goth stage, still am. But I used to like hide behind that. It was almost like my curtain, you know. So if I thought anyone was staring at me or if I was overly conscious about my appearance, I could just hide behind that. So it sort of became a reflection. The scarf became a reflection in the character of Jack as a means to hide. It was almost like a blocking behavior so that he could hide away from the world, you know, hide away from their scrutiny in accordance to his appearance. And it's just a way that you can use characters in a novel to reflect how you feel about the world, or as I've mentioned before, your novels can be seen as a form of release. It's it's a way to exercise your own personal demons, and in our case, personal inhibitions, as well as them. And it just raises awareness about the way in which we view ourselves as a society as well. Okay, so that about sums it up for this episode. Let's go ahead and get into the next one. And welcome to the tips of the trade section of this podcast. Basically, this is the section of the podcast where we discuss tips for those of you aspiring to be authors yourself or those of you who are already authors that just want that little bit extra. So this episode, we're going to be talking about the idea of originality. Now, this is one of the ideas that's largely discussed in any form of media in the sense that what is an original idea? Now, by this point, you will have the makings of your idea, you will have had your book planned, and maybe even going into your first chapter. But perhaps you've come to the point where you think, oh, what if my idea isn't original enough? So that's what we're going to discuss here in this episode to hopefully put your mind at ease. First of all, originality is knowing that every idea has already been done and being comfortable with it. Because as far as I'm concerned, every idea has been done. Recorded history is only 20% of actual history. So if your idea pops up in that 20%, you know that it's relatively common. Even if it doesn't pop up in that 20%, the other 80% of, recorded, of, of unrecorded history, your idea probably ended up in. The difference between how originality is viewed 
say, several hundred years ago, and how it's viewed today, is the gap of time represented between when it was last seen. So, for example, I'm going to use the horror genre because it's one of my favorite genres and it, it just, it's one of those easy examples. Now, in most forms of media, an original idea is not sought after because it doesn't make money. That simple. But as a creator, such as yourself, as an author, you want your idea not to be as far out there as possible, but you want your idea to speak solely of you. What are you bringing to this franchise? What are you bringing to this idea? So we've seen it in several uh, different ways in horror where let's take a trope that's literally been done to death. Zombies. Yeah. We have seen so many different zombie movies from 28 Days Later to Night of the Living Dead, if you want to go classic, to Resident Evil and all these different sorts of uh, movies. But what you'll notice about them is they all try to add something to that trope. So if you take an example like Chernobyl Diaries, it's instead of being zombies, they're survivors from the Chernobyl disaster and they resort to eating people. If you take... I am legend. It's a similar thing, you know, where they've had uh, a possible cure for cancer and then it's turned them into basically almost vampiric hybrids of zombies. You take a game like The Last of Us and they play on the zombie trope, but this time it's brought upon by a parasitic fungi. You can add your own trope to that in a way of making it quote unquote original. As I said before, the gap between when it is first represented and when you represent it will determine how original your idea is. So, for example, we did this in another later novel known as Blood Moon Autumn Peak. Now, we wanted to write a story which basically went along the lines of The Order 1886. Now, for all the critique that The Order 1886 gets, I personally enjoyed the game, no matter how short it was, no matter the fact that it left you on a cliffhanger and the fact that the battle mechanics weren't exactly up to scratch. But... I enjoyed it as a game, so I thought, right, I'd like to write a book made off of that trope. But I thought, werewolves have been done to death. So what can I do to make that idea original or make something original? Now, what I discovered in researching mythology is that werewolves are not the only lycanthrope. So we discovered were-tigers. And I thought, okay, this is literally just going to be a hybrid of the werewolf. But if you actually go into the mythos, and the lore behind were-tigers. You find that they come from the glorious nation of India, that there's multiple ways in which you can become a were-tiger, that you have full control over it. It's not called upon by the power of the full moon, all these different kinds of things. And it's just a different form of the lycanthrope trope, so to speak, without having to use werewolves over and over and over again. So sometimes an original idea can be playing off something that has been quote-unquote done to death and just adding your own spin on it or it can be something completely out there. Because to our knowledge, were-tigers have not been mentioned in any form of media apart from the occasional Tekken fighting games and maybe some Japanese art cartoons, you know, manga, that sort of thing. That's the only thing that comes to mind that have even referenced were-tigers in popular media. So that makes, to me, for an original enough idea that it might raise eyebrows. You know, it might get someone going, oh, I've never seen that represented in a book before and that's something that you can do as well with your ideas so if you're looking at the idea for your book and you're thinking oh it's sort of following a trope that i feel has been done to death 
try to spruce it up in some way, shape or form. Bring something into that idea that maybe necessarily hasn't been overly used. I mean, obviously you want something that has been used, but what you want to do is build upon it. You know, have something where you're not just adding to a stagnant stereotype or a stagnant niche of genre. You know, you're actually adding something different to that genre. Once you've done that, then you can determine my idea may not be quote unquote original, but it is as close to original as possible. And that will help you in getting past this problem of originality to the point where you will then feel comfortable enough to actually go into those tropes that have been quote unquote done to death and contribute to them without feeling like you're just ripping off someone else's idea. Okay, so that about wraps it up for this section. And that's the end of episode two. Once again, guys, thank you for tuning in. It means the world to us that you would take half an hour out of your time to make us a part of it. it really means the world to us. Hope you've enjoyed the episode and you've taken something from it. Then we know we're on the right track. Of course, we'll endeavour to include any of the links to any of the relative websites, videos, that sort of thing that relate to the various hints and tips that have been mentioned during the episode and we'll include those in the link below so that you have access to all the relevant information that's been mentioned in this episode. Right now I'm just going to take some time to talk about a project that involves a personal friend of mine, Callum Young. Any of you who are interested in having murals or graphic design for your business, be sure to head on over to www.topdogstudios, that's all lowercase letters, .co.uk and you'll find a professional website where it gives you a section where you can enter your name, your email address, your phone number. You can tell Callum about the project and then there's also additional sections for your budget and the time scale in which you want it done. So if you're interested in having your brand represented professionally by an artist who specializes in handcrafted design, boasting to paint on all surfaces, be sure to check www.topdogstudios.co.uk out or if you know anyone else who'd be interested point them in that direction i'm sure callum would love to hear about your project and would take just as much passion in it as they would or you would okay once again thank you guys for tuning in making us a part of your day i'm wayne telford and i'll see you next time